We're going to start with the Torah portion today. So if you were with us for the Torah study, um, you already have your Bibles there to Leviticus 14. Uh, if you were not able to join us for our Torah study this morning, I would invite you to take out your scriptures and open to Leviticus chapter 14. I'm going to go ahead and read through this chapter of the Torah portion because there are certain things that will come out of it that... Uh, that I will refer to later, but I'm just going to read through it. This is, this is one chapter, somewhat lengthy, but um, it is the word of the Lord, and uh, the word of the Lord um, is right and true, and it does not return void. We love the word of the Lord. Let's hear it now. Leviticus 14, Then Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, This is the Torah of the one with Zaharat in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the Kohen, and the Kohen is to go outside of the camp. The Kohen is to examine him. And behold, if the mark of Zarat is healed in one with Zarat, then the Kohen is to, is to command that two clean living birds, cedarwood, scarlet, and hyssop, be brought for the one being cleansed. The Kohen shall command them to kill one of the birds in a clay pot over living water. As for the living bird, he is to take it, the cedarwood, the scarlet and the hyssop, and dip them with the living bird into the blood of the bird that was killed over the living water. He is to sprinkle on the one being cleansed from the Zarat seven, time, seven times and pronounce him clean, then release the living bird over the open field. The one to be cleansed must wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, and bathe himself in water. Then he shall be clean." After that, he may come into the camp, but he is to dwell outside of his tent for seven days. Then on the seventh day, he is to shave all his hair from his head, his beard and his eyebrows, and he must shave off all his hair. And he is to wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. Then he will be clean. On the eighth day, he is to take two male lambs without blemish, one year old, a one-year-old ewe lamb without blemish, three-tenths of a pint of F pint of fine flour as a grain offering, mingled with oil and a pint of oil. And the Kohen who cleanses him is to set the man who, who to be cleansed along with those items before Adonai at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the Kohen shall then take one of the male lambs and offer it for a trespass offering with a pint of oil and wave them as a wave offering before Adonai. Then he is to slaughter the male lamb in the place where the, they slaughter the sin offering and the burnt offering in the sanctuary. For the sin offering, like the trespass offering, belongs to the Kohen. It's most holy. Then the Kohen is to take some of the blood of the trespass offering and dab it, it on the tip of the right ear of the one being cleansed, on the thumb of the right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. And the Kohen shall then take some of the pint of oil and pour it into the palm of his own left hand. And he is to dip his right finger in the oil that is in his left hand and sprinkle some of that oil with his finger seven times before Adonai. Then the Kohen shall dab some of the rest of the oil that is in his hand on the tip of the right ear of the one being cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, and on, the top of the, on top of the blood of the trespass offering. From what remains of that oil in his hand, the Kohen is to dab on the head of the one being cleansed. In this way, the Kohen shall make atonement for him before Adonai. The Kohen shall offer the sin offering and make atonement for the one being cleansed because of his uncleanness. Afterward, he is to slaughter the burnt offering. Then the Kohen is to present the burnt offering with the grain offering on the altar. So the Kohen shall make atonement for him, and he will be clean. If he's poor, 
and cannot afford so much, then he will take one male lamb for a trespass offering to be waived to make atonement for him plus one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mingled with oil for a grain offering, a pint of oil, two turtle doves or two young pigeons as such as he is able to afford, and the one shall be a sin offering and the other a burnt offering." On the eighth day, he is to bring them to the Kohen for his cleansing at the entrance of the tent of meeting before Adonai. The Kohen is to take the lamb of the trespass offering and the pint of oil and wave them before a wave offering before Adonai. He is to slaughter the lamb of the trespass offering. The Kohen is to take some of the blood of the trespass offering and dab it on the tip of his, the right ear of the one being cleansed. And on the right, and the thumb of his right hand, on the big toe of his right foot. And the Kohen shall then pour some of the oil into the palm of his own left hand, he is to sprinkle with his right finger some of the oil that is in the left hand seven times before Adonai. Then the Kohen is to dab some of the oil that is in his hand on the tip of the right ear of the one being cleansed, and on the, along with the thumb of his right hand, on the big toe of his right foot, on top of the place of the blood of the trespass offering. And the rest of the oil that is in his hand, the Kohen is to dab on the head of the one being cleansed and to make atonement for him before Adonai. He is to offer one of the turtle doves or young pigeons from what, is in, from what his hand can afford, the sin, one for the sin offering and the other for the burnt offering with the grain offering. The Kohen shall make atonement for him, being cleansed before Adonai. This is the Torah for the one who is, has the mark of Za'arat, who is not able to afford the sacrifice for his cleansing. Adonai spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Suppose you have come into the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession, and I put a mark of Zarah in the house of the land you possess. And I want you to remember that, that God put that there. Verse 35, Then the one who owns the house shall come and tell the Kohen, saying, Something like a mark has appeared in my house. The Kohen is to, is to order the house emptied before he goes in to examine the mark, so that nothing in the house may be made unclean. Then, afterward, the Kohen is to enter the house, to inspect the house. He is to examine the mark, and behold, if the mark is, on, is in the walls of the house with hollow streaks, greenish or reddish, and appears deeper than the wall, then the Kohen is to go out of the house to the door and close up the house for seven days. Then the Kohen is to come again on the seventh day, and behold, if the mark has spread on the walls of the house, then the Kohen is to command that they take out the stones which are marked and throw them into an unclean place outside of the city. He shall also have the inside of the house scraped all throughout, and they are to dump the mortar that they scraped off outside of the city into an unclean place. They may then take other stones and put them in the place of those stones, Likewise, he can take other mortar and, pl and plaster the house. But suppose the contamination returns, breaking out in the house, after he has pulled out the stones and after he has scraped the house and it has been replastered. Then the Kohen is to go examine, and behold, if the plague has spread within the house, it is a destructive mildew inside. It is unclean. He is to break down the house, its stones, its timber, and along with all the house's mortar, and carry it outside of the city into an unclean place. Moreover, whoever goes into the house while it's shut up will be unclean until evening. The one who lies down in the house must wash his clothes, and he who eats in the house must wash his clothes too. But if the Kohen comes in, inspects it, and behold, the plague is not spread within the house after it was replastered, then he shall pronounce the house clean because the contamination is healed. In order to cleanse the house, he is to take... Two birds, cedarwood, scarlet, and hyssop. 
He is to kill one of the birds in a clay pot over the living water. Then he is to take the cedar wood, the hyssop, and the scarlet, and the living bird, and dip them into the blood of the slain birds as well as the living bird, the living water, and sprinkle the house seven times. He, he shall cleanse the house with the blood of the bird, with the living water, and with the living bird, the cedar wood, the hyssop, and the scarlet. But he is to let the living bird go out of the city into the open field. <clears throat> so he is to make atonement for the house, and it will be clean. This is the Torah for any mark of Zaharat, even for a scab, or the Zaharat in a garment, or for a house, or for a swelling, a scab, or a bright spot, to teach when it is unclean and when it is clean. This is the Torah of Zaharat. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to share with you some thoughts this morning. Um, some of these were shared and, and brought up in our Torah study this morning. So, um, so the, I, and, I, and I found that to be particularly wonderful and engaging this morning. So there, there's really um, two primary sections of this Torah portion this morning. Um, the first dealing with the, the purification of a person who has za'arat, uh, that individual that is quarantined outside the camp. And the second is the purification of a dwelling place or a house with Zarat. Um, then it, there's a small section there at the end that, uh, that is the general summary of it. But overall, um, we're talking about a person or a dwelling place who has Zarat. And with the person, um, there's, even, there's some, a few sections within that. Um, first, there's a section in verses 1 through 8 where the person is outside the camp. And then starting in verse 8 through 32 we have the section where the person is brought back into the camp. This is the purification ritual. And then, and, and then after that, they are, have the right to return to their dwelling place. So this person with za'arat, they would be known in Hebrew as a metzora. Okay, this would be the, the title of the Torah portion in, um, in the traditional annual cycle is actually Metzora. In verse 2, it calls this person a Metzora. This is a person who's afflicted with Zarat. Um, Zor and Zarat, they are related words in the Hebrew. And so um, this is, a, again, a, a person. A Metzora is a person who is afflicted with Zarat. Now, this person with Metzora, they are... Um, treated very peculiarly, peculiarly, can't even say that word this morning, in a peculiar, peculiar way. Um, this person is sent outside the camp, okay? Sent outside the camp. Now, we found in our Torah study this morning, we brought up an interesting parallel to this, because we find something very similar to this. There was a question that was brought up of, where else do we see this, this, this um, dealing with the, uh, the, this ritual of being outside the camp and you have this, uh, this bird, this uh, cedar wood, the scarlet, the hyssop. Um, where do you find the cedar wood, the scarlet, and hyssop again? You find them in Numbers 19. You find the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop. In Numbers 19, um, this is the section about where they have the ashes of the red heifer. Now, this is a section in Numbers 19 that is talking about purification for those who have been defiled because of a dead person. So, 
question for us that we discussed in our Torah study was, well, how do these two relate? And the thought is, is that this person, this Metzora, who is sent outside the camp, they are treated as a dead person. They are treated as a corpse, at least in the terms of the ritual defilement. And then they are purified then as a person who has been treated, who has touched a dead person. That is how they are, they are, that's their ritual purification, that they are restored as if they had touched a dead person. But I want us to remember the importance of the fact that they are treated as good as dead. We're going to touch on this in a little bit. But the fact that they are treated as good as dead is important for us to remember that they are treated as a dead person. The, the second thing about this Mitzorah is if you paid attention to that purification ritual, what you will note is that there was continual um, parallels here to the purification of the priests. If you'll note the anointing with the oil on the right hand, on the ear, on the toe, and on the head, the anointing of the oil. The person who is a Metzora, in their restoration process, is going through the same process as the priest was going through when they're being set apart for service to God. So let's not lose that important parallel that the person with the Metzora is actually in the restoration being set apart as holy. Now, the third thing I want us to notice in here, and we didn't really talk about this in our Torah study this morning, but I think it's important for us to bring up, is the part where the person, the Metzora, is commanded to shave their body. Now, when we think about, in Scripture, others who shaved their body, we think of the Nazarite, the person who would take a Nazarite vow. The person who would take a Nazarite vow was themselves taking on a vow to separate themselves unto the Lord, to be separated out unto the Lord. And so the, there is a sacrifice in this that's similar to the sacrifice that the Nazarite offers. There is a demonstration of the removal of the hair that is similar to the one of the Nazarite. It's, this, it's really the same. This is a person, this Metzora, is in effect becoming a Nazarite in a, in a, in a sense for this period of time. So what, sh what should we think about these things? What does it mean that this person is treated as a corpse? That this person is anointed like a priest who's being set apart, that this person is shaved like a Nazarite that is being set apart. And I think what we can consider out of this is holiness. That God is concerned with holiness. Throughout the Torah, we see God telling us, you be holy as I am holy. We know that God, who is dwelling among them, cannot be around sin. He cannot be around something that's defiled. So he's showing them holiness. An emphasis is being made in, to be holy in order to come to God, who lives in their midst. The priest and the Nazarite, they were both dedicated. They were separated. They were holy 
unto God. Not from God, not separated from God, but holy to God. And I think that's an important distinction to make. You know, when the person is a Mazora, they are separated from God. But when they are brought back, they are restored to God and they are dedicated to God. A person who was as good as dead, whose defilement required complete separation from God's community, is now received back totally clean. 100% clean as one who is entirely holy and separated to God, dedicated to God, not from God. In fact, you might say that they are even better than they were before they had them at Sora. Now, what about this priest? What about this priest who goes out to this person? What can we think about the priest? The priest has to go outside the camp to the person who has Metzora, who, who has Zarat, who is the Metzora, who's impure. They go out to that person to examine them and to then do the ritual of, that God has prescribed here as so far as declaring them clean. And then they offer the sacrifice. Let's think about this in parallel with Yeshua. Yeshua, who left the presence of the Almighty God, the Father. He had to leave and come to those of us who are impure. He left heaven to go to a people who were as good as dead, with no ability to enter God's holy place on our own. A people whose only hope was that the priest would come and cleanse them and restore them so that they could enter the presence of God. This priest was very real in Leviticus 14. This is a very real scenario that God is giving real instruction for their daily lives. But it is not just a real instruction for them. It is a parallel, a symbolism for us today. It was a symbolism for Israel and is a symbolism for us today. We cannot take out of the scripture what it did not mean for those who were receiving it. And it re meant both to them that the priest is the one who would go and heal. And the priest is the one who comes and heals us today. We have a great high priest, Yeshua, who came out of heaven. He descended. He became a man. He became flesh to dwell among us. He came to us out of the presence of God to then cleanse us, to make himself the sacrifice. As we spoke in our Torah study this morning, he became the Mazora on our behalf. He became the one who was cleansed from our sin, from, who cleansed us from our sins. He became the one who took our sins upon him, that infection, that sin that is the infectious disease in our lives. And he took that upon himself. But then in his own power, he defeated that sin. That separate, even though he was outside the camp, he was taken outside the city. He was separated from God, too, in that sense. He descended, but then he rose again in the power of God, in the power of the Spirit. He defeated sin. He defeated death, and in God's power, he rose from the dead 
cleansed, declaring cleansing for all of us who would trust in him. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. I think that is something that we can shout about, that we have that cleansing, that that priest has come to us and said, come back in now. Come back in. You are invited back in, but you're not invited back in in your old sin anymore. No, you are invited back in, set apart, dedicated wholly to the Lord. I am going to shave you. I'm going to remove that impurity from you. And you will be dedicated to service now. You are set apart. You are a set apart people, as it says in 1 Peter. A holy people set apart, a priesthood set apart for service to the Lord. Amen. Amen. Now, I said to remember also verse 34 in this section. Verse 34, suppose you have come to the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession, and I put a, I put a mark of Zara on the house in the land you possess. There was a question in our Torah study this morning, well, why would God do that? Why would God put the mark there? Why would God put, give a mark there? And one of, the re, one of the questions or the thoughts that I had in response to that question, I guess, was, you know, my wife and I, we pray that our kids are caught in their sin. We pray that our kids' sin is exposed. Why do we do that? We pray that because when the sin is exposed, then the sin can be dealt with. The sin can be repented of. The sin can be forgiven. But when the sin is hidden, when it's invisible, then it festers away. And it eats at the person deadly, like a, like a house that has a deadly mold in it, for example. When that, that mold is spreading, hidden, the people, the residents of that house can have significant health effects. They don't even know why, because they have this hidden mold. Maybe they have a black mold in their house and it's hidden and it's, and it's causing significant, serious health issues with that person. And they don't even know why they have this infectious disease that's spreading and could be deadly to them. But yet then God exposes it. God brings it out to light so that it can be dealt with. In this case, it's is our sin that God will sometimes expose. He will make the unclean visible and he will make it be able to be dealt with. He says the, to remove it, just as Yeshua in, his, in one of his parables said, if your hand sins, cut it off. You remove it from you, that sin from you. You remove it when it's exposed, that sinning, that, that stone from the wall. You remove it and you put it to the unclean place and you, put, you replace back in it something good that God has given to us. The Mazorah has to be, is, is a person, in this case the Zaharat, has to be cleansed from the house. It has to be exposed. In the same way, we, our sin, needs to be exposed. It needs to come to light so that the sin in our lives can be removed and can be dealt with appropriately. That's why God would put a mark of Zara on a house, to expose and to deal with sin in our lives. 
So what's the application for us today? Where does it come with in this sin, this forgiveness of sin? I want us to remember that when it comes to the sin that's exposed here, that the forgiveness of sin is so important to consider. Nothing is more potent in Satan's weapons than the weapon of guilt. You know, when, when we are feeling ravaged by the devastating effects of our sin, when we find ourselves unable to believe that we have been forgiven, we find ourselves in a difficult situation where we, we are unable to accept it. Some people really can't accept forgiveness. However, this is our calling to be humbled in God's grace. This is our calling to, to humble ourselves and say, okay, yes, my sin has been exposed. Now we will walk through the pain. Yes, it's painful, but we will walk through it in the healing process. You know, sometimes we are haunted. We are embarrassed by our sin. You know, we think that we could never again be viewed by people or by God as worthy. We find it difficult to look at ourselves as fully accepted. We'd rather die. We'd rather give in to the lie of the enemy. We'd rather start thinking that we need to, we need to suffer because somehow our own suffering will help cleanse us from that filth. These are pretty normal human emotions that we need to turn away from, though. We need to turn away from them and focus on a different picture. If we, if we learn nothing else from this powerful picture of purification that we read in Leviticus 14, we should learn that God has given us every symbol <clears throat> and ritual available to assure us of the full acceptance in his son, in Yeshua. We've seen the sacrifice. We've watched the live bird fly away. Why is it a live bird? Why does it fly away? To get as far away as the east is from the west. To take that sin so far away. That's why it's a live bird. Psalm 103.12 talks about that. If you want to look that up. To take as far away your sin as the east is from the west. That's why it's a live bird to fly away. It's a wild bird, it says in the text, to fly away. We've seen that fly away. We have seen the sacrifice. We have been anointed by the blood in the presence of the preciousness of the oil of the Spirit. We have been anointed by that. We have been set apart, and that is done to us personally, to every aspect of our being, to our hands, to our here, ears, to our head, to our feet where we walk. Every aspect of our being is anointed. It's cleansed and anointed and set apart. Therefore, because we have been set apart, then, as we say in our liturgy, as we open up, we can then come before the throne of grace and we can bow before the throne of grace. We can seek his strength and provision for all that he has called us to. We can live a life of thankfulness. This is practical to live a life of thankfulness and bring our offerings of praise to the one who has made us whole, who has restored us, who, us, we are the Metzora, and he has restored us. And we are welcomed back, not into, just to the camp, but we are welcomed back to the Father's table. We are welcomed back into fellowship with him. Not because of something that we've done, but what he has done. It says in 1 John 3, 1, see how great a love the Father 
has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Now, I want us to tie this together with where we're at now in this age of COVID-19, in the age of coronavirus, in the idea of us regathering next week as we gather, we're going to gather together in person. You know, for the past few months, we've had an array of complex challenges related to dealing with COVID-19 from a congregational leadership perspective this has been very difficult and perhaps the trickiest challenge is actually prudently coming back together resuming our in-person gatherings and as if the logistical details weren't enough weren't challenging enough how to maintain social distance whether or not to require masks what to do with kids and so on this this whole conversation is is fraught for division Potential division. And so when remnant of Israel, we come back together, you know, we're going to contain a, a broad assortment of strongly held convictions of coming back together. Some of us are really eager to meet in person and we are impatient and we want to get back together. We can't, we can't wait to get back together. While there's others among us who would insist that it is unwise to meet together yet. And plenty of people fall somewhere in between. We're not sure. And you see, though, the difference between today's portion on Zarat and the age of the coronavirus is that with Zarat, there was a definitiveness about it, both with its beginning and with its end. But whereas now, we're living in a time of uncertainty for the past few months with everyone having different opinions and convictions about the beginning and end and all things in between, when in reality, no one really knows. We're just uncertain about these things. So in such a situation, how can we, as remnant of Israel, how can we move forward in unity? As Psalm 133:1, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. How can we move together in unity rather than in division? It's not going to be easy, but I do believe that by the power of the grace of the Holy Spirit, the Ruach is going to unify us in ways that our flesh resists. In, the, in this time when we begin to regather, we need to keep our focus on the one who heals us, who purifies us. Remember that we are the Mitzorah, the one who purifies us, Yeshua, our Messiah. We need to focus on him first and foremost and not on the differing ways that folks are behaving with regard to the coronavirus. In addition to that, we have a particularly amazing opportunity to model love, as it says in Leviticus 19.18, to model love that places interest of others above ourselves. You know, for example, some people might find it personally difficult if some business like Costco were to require you to wear a mask and stay six feet away from everyone at all times. Some of us might find that very difficult. You might think these precautions are a needless overreaction, but even if it turns out you're right, the question is, can we not sacrifice our ideals for a season out of love for others who believe that those precautions are necessary? Even if we think it's personally silly for someone to stay at home, even after the synagogue is reopened again on Shabbat, we need to heed Rav Shaul's wisdom 
in Romans 14. Let's turn to Romans 14 this morning. In Romans 14, it says, Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of disputes about opinions. One person has faith to eat anything, but the weak eats only vegetables. Don't let the one who eats disparage the one who does not eat. Don't let the one who does not eat judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge another servant? Before his own master he stands or falls. Yes, he shall stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day over another, while another judges every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes that day does so to the Lord. The one who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And the one who abstains, abstains to the Lord, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself, and none of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this reason, Messiah died and lived again, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you, too, why do you look down upon your brother? For we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says Adonai, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us shall account, give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another from now on, but rather decide this, not to put a stumbling block or a trap in the way of a brother. I know, and I'm persuaded in the Lord Yeshua that nothing is unholy in itself, but it is unholy for the one who considers it unholy. For if your brother is grieved on account of food, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by your food the one for whom Messiah died. Therefore, do not let what is good for you be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but about righteousness and shalom and joy in the Ruach HaKodesh. For the one who serves Messiah in this manner is pleasing to God and is approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for shalom and for the building up of one another. Stop tearing down the work of God for the sake of food. Indeed, all things are clean, but wrong for the man who eats, causing stumbling. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith you have, keep it to yourself before God. How fortunate is the one who does not condemn himself for what he approves. But the one who has doubts is condemned if he eats because it is not of faith. And whatever is not of faith is sin. Now, why do I read that talking about food? A section of Paul's letter, Rothschild's letter to the believers in Romans, talking about not letting personal preferences get in the way of relationships on one level and getting in the way of the kingdom of God overall. Paul uses the analogy of food in his story. Our situation now isn't really about food, but it's not so different when it comes to the precautions around the coronavirus. Now, there are a few important verses I want to reread as a point of emphasis. In verse 13 of chapter 14 of Romans, it says, Therefore, let us not judge one another from now on, but rather decide this, not to put a stumbling block or a trap in the way of a brother. Very similar to 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, but watch out that the freedom of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. 
You know, we just need to think about how are we acting? Are we putting a stumbling block in front of one another when we are treating one another with contempt, contempt in the way that we're reacting to the coronavirus? Likewise, those who think the lockdown should continue should not pass judgment on those who question the wisdom of the government's ongoing restrictions. We have differing opinions. We need to strive to honor people on both sides of the spectrum. Yeah, it's going to be a sacrifice for those of us who are sick of masks, social distancing, of Zoom, and who can't stand any more Zoom meetings. If we can, but it is a sacrifice that we can make and continue to use these for the sake of others. Isn't, little, isn't it a little more... Um, excuse me. There is little more spiritual than a posture of sacrifice. We need to assume that posture of sacrifice, that posture of humility, and we should embrace it with gladness. In verse 15 of Romans chapter 14, if your brother is grieved on account of food, you are no longer walking according to love. Don't destroy by your food the one for whom Messiah died. You could replace the word food here with coronavirus precautions. If your brother is aggrieved on the account of coronavirus precautions, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by your attitudes and behavior toward the coronavirus precautions the one for whom Messiah died. And then to verse 17, the kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking, but about righteousness and shalom and joy in the Ruach HaKodesh. The kingdom of God is not about the virus either. The kingdom of God even in the age of coronavirus, is about righteousness and shalom and joy. And that is what we have, the bond of the Holy Spirit, and that's what we need to focus on. As much as ever before, we need to follow the advice of Yeshua's brother, Yaakov, Jacob, James, who says, be quick to listen, quick to listen slow to speak, slow to anger. We need to model that Messiah-like humility that Paul emphasizes in Philippians 2.3. And how we react when we see plans that are outlined. Even if we don't agree with every aspect of it. There's going to be many plans that are outlined and presented by governments and organizations. You know, countries are still quarantining new visitors. Schools are working out what the rules are going to be like to return this fall. Businesses are determining what is safe for their employees and customers. Churches and synagogues are trying to figure out how to protect those and everyone who comes into their walls in order to best serve and build the kingdom. And what we can't do is we cannot assume that we've arrived at some definitive answer of how to do this well because no one really knows how to do this well. We're all flying by the seat of our pants and trying to figure it out. And so we just need to model humility by acknowledging that everything is not obvious. And we are in an age of uncertainty and we're just we are trying to do the best that we can. Everyone's trying to do the best that we can. I want to close, begin to close with a word on patience. You know, I know that so many of us are anxious to break free from the stay home. We're anxious to get back together. Isolation is not fun. And we want to get back to normal. So, you know, those of us who take Hebrews 10.25 seriously, and we all should, and it says to get back to meeting together, we should ache for that. We should ache 
for what is lost when only, we're only meeting virtually. But I say that on one hand, but at the same time, just be patient, please. Because the timeline might be a little slower than you prefer. You need to be patient with the reopening process, the regathering process, because doubtless there will be clunkiness to it. It will not all be perfect. We need to be patient with leaders who feel the pressure of this complex situation. I certainly do. Patient with one another as we try and figure out the new normal. As hard as it is to remember this patience, to practice this patience, we need to remember that this is just but a blip in the scheme of the season. This, this, we have to remember that our lives are eternal. And this is just a blip on that. It's a short season. So let's bear with one another together and lift one another up. Walk with one another. What Rav Shaul urges the Ephesian congregation, therefore should be equally urgent to us, that we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you are called with complete humility and gentleness and patience, putting up with one another in love, making every effort to keep unity and the bond of shalom. It's Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to close now. I want to tie this a little bit back to our Torah portion this morning. About this whole idea of this coronavirus and how God places a sarat to expose sin and how God uses a humbling experience to prepare people for service. When he restores them for service and he's setting them apart, he uses a humbling experience in Acts chapter 9. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the Lord's disciples, went to the Kohen Gadol. He requested letters of introduction from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women belonging to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Yeshua whom you are persecuting, but get up and go into the city and you will do, be, be told what you must do. The men traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground being opened, but opening his eyes, he could see nothing. <clears throat> they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he could not see, and he did not eat or drink. Now there was a disciple named Ananias in Damascus, and the Lord said to him, Ananias, and he said, Hineni, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street named Straight, and ask in the house of Judah for someone named, someone from Tarsus named Saul. For, for look, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming and laying his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many, from, from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your Kedeshim in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the ruling Kohanim to tie up all who call on your name. But the Lord said, Go, for he, has, he is a choice instrument to carry my name for the nations and the kings of Bnei Yisrael. And B'nai Yisrael, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And so Ananias went and he 
prayed over Saul. And the scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he was set apart for service unto the Lord. But he did have to suffer as well. It was a transformative experience for Paul. And I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that this time can and should be a transformative experience for us to, be, to regain our focus on the Messiah. To allow this time when we've had probably more than a little downtime to regain and fo- our focus on the Lord, on the one who is setting us apart for service unto him. We need to be purified, remnant of Israel, and ready to be set apart for the service, just as the Metzora was. Amen. Amen.